Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Dishcast. I am, I don't know, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have an old friend come on the podcast and talk about what is another fantastic book, Michael Lewis. I don't know, I can't really introduce him, except that he is, let me say this, and he will demur, but I think he's the best nonfiction writer in America. And I have never read a book of his without enjoying it, first of all, and secondly, learning from it. And I learned, I was lucky enough to be his colleague and editor at The New Republic in the 90s, where he wrote probably the best book about primary politics and <laughs> electoral politics that is the least celebrated, but should be, it's The Losers. He wrote this fantastic journal of the campaign of 1996 with the great star Maury Taylor as its central figure. Michael has a capacity to see people and to describe them and to understand them. And all his nonfiction is really a story of individual people and how they're grappling with the challenges that life throws up at them. And that was certainly the case in this new book. Now, it's why has it gone out of my head? Pandemic, that's what it's the, called? What, no, it's called The Premonition. The Premonition, that's what it right. is, The Premonition, because this plague that we're going through was very well forecast. <laughs> it was predicted, it was seen, it was understood. We even had a president brilliant enough of George W. Bush to, to take a book home for the summer, <laughs> read it on the flu of 1918, and realize that something had to be done about this. So, Michael, tell me, how did you, first of all, manage to figure out the story and produce it in the amount of time necessary to capture that we're still in this plague and to understand exactly how some people did try and prevent it and who didn't. So it actually wasn't that hard. And it wasn't that hard because I realized at some point that the story was how we responded at the beginning. And whatever happened at the end, that it was the beginning that was that interested me, the sheer ineptitude. And in particular that, you know, it wasn't just me. It was a big study had been done by the Nuclear Threat Initiative, well before the pandemic, to to gauge the preparedness of all the societies on Earth for just this threat. And they spent millions of dollars and used hundreds of experts and assembled like a, a league ranking of who was best prepared for a pandemic or who had the resources. It was what it really was to deal with a pandemic threat. And the United States and the United Kingdom finished one and two. And it was just intriguing to watch those two societies completely fail at the outset when they were when they had all the supposedly the, the cards were completely uh, st stacked in their favor. So that that had interested me in the first place. So I, I knew I wasn't going to have to wait to see how this thing played out. That that my story would be over by kind of May of last year. And the other side of it was, it's so character based. I think maybe more than any other book I've written, it is driven by these almost fictional like characters that they've got those kind of dimensions and when i realized i had the characters to essentially simulate in a narrative nonfiction way sort of who should how it should have been handled and who should have run it and sort of a fantasy team for who might have saved us from all of this death um then i was on my way and the actual so from start to finish it took me a year and that's what Moneyball took, and that's what the Big Short took, and so it wasn't the speed wasn't that hard. It was the 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 problem. The only problem I had to overcome was the sense that well, I'm not going to know how this ends. 
when I finished the book, in the sense that I'm not going to know how the pandemic ends. And we still, but I overcame. But how did you quickly. find these characters? I mean, did yeah. one person show up and you that led to another person, as often the case? Or did you just, as, as often happens with you, you hear some story or rumor, you track it down, you find this remarkable person, like this woman literally called Charity, yeah. who, who is, is, is such an extraordinary figure in this book. You kind of grow to love her, to be honest with you. And how did you find her, for example? Well, Lots of different important people were pointing fingers in her direction by the time she okay. was the last character I found. Okay. She was the, she, but the way it worked was it, this story goes back actually several years. Several years ago, San Francisco money manager arranged to have dinner with me because he was convinced I needed to write a book about a, a biochemist named Joe who was about to take the helm of the Chan Zuckerberg biohub. Mark Zuckerberg's money with Priscilla Chan's brains was going to create this thing. They were going to go and try to eliminate the infectious disease by the end of the 21st century. And Derisi was in charge of this thing. And everybody, it, it, so I went, and go, I went to go see Joe Derisi three years ago. And he was, the money manager was right. He was an unbelievable character. He, he was devoting his life to finding ways to use genomic technology to track, to hunt viruses. And had he had, you know, he'd done bizarre things like found and eliminated a, a pandemic virus in boa constrictors. You know, he had been the first, he is a, was among the first to identify the first SARS. The CDC didn't know what it was, but he and his lab had figured out a way to identify it. And I, I thought, fantastic character. I, I loved him as a person and as, a, as someone to write about. But what business do I have writing about this subject? So I sort of put it to one side. And I went back to him at the very beginning of the pandemic. And sure enough, he had leapt in with both feet and turned the biohub into a coronavirus testing lab when there wasn't any testing even in the Bay Area. No fast testing. And he said, you need to talk to Charity Dean because she's a badass health officer at the state of California. She's the only one who knows what she's talking about. And you're right. Charity Dean is, is the soul of the book. And, and the trick of the book, to the extent there is one, is to take this seemingly unimportant person, like her status is low, and elevate her to the role of main character, which would, which should have happened in the pandemic. What should have happened is some really competent local public health officer should have been front and center because these are the people who, for the, since we've had health officers, who have been charged with managing disease outbreaks. And, but one and, thing that you do that others don't is that you somehow get to the psychological origins, the, the, the family history, the motivations, their own self-understanding in a way that very few writers do. So you must have spent a long time with her, right? You must have spent yes. days talking to her. You must have just had your ears totally pricked for any little tiny detail from her past that you could understand her better from. And so how do you do that? I mean, just, just as, a, as someone who just admires your work, uh, how do you get into someone's soul like that? How do you get them to trust you and to talk to you? And to, do you spend days with them? Do you just follow them around? Do you do you just do several interviews with them? Do you? How do you do it? It's I. It's a relate. It ends up being a relationship that's not like a reporter subject relationship. In yeah. The in the sense that I'm, I have to immerse myself in their lives to the point where they kind of forget I'm there. Yeah. So with Charity, after I, she was in Sacramento. I was down here. I, I would drive up there and spend three or four hours with her in her house. And she would, she would explain to me what was what. 
But the subtext was of the first few sessions was, do I trust this guy? And I had to explain to her why I was interested in her because she was a little perplexed. She just thought mystified. No one else was all that interested in her and why I thought I could tell a story through her eyes. And she said after the third session, she said, you know, I've got to make a decision whether to trust you or not. I'm not good at doing things in a half-assed way. And I've decided I'm going to trust you. Now, we then we went all over the state together. I, she had to take me back to Santa Barbara, where she'd been a local health officer. And she, you know, we spent a week touring her past life and visiting the scenes that I, you know, the places where the scenes unfold that are in the book unfolded. And I asked her at some point, this is ap really apropos of your question, kind of six months into this relationship, I said, well, what are you making of all this? I really have immersed my, you have become a main character in effectively a novel. I've had to, and, and she has said to me at one point, you now know me better than either of my two ex-husbands. She wasn't saying that much, but it was, <laughs> right? But, but it was saying something. And, and she said, you know, a couple of months in, I thought to myself, nothing about this man's process inspires confidence. And, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I could, I said, well, why? She said, well, you weren't you were tape recording anything. You were scribbling notes every now and then, but I couldn't tell you what you were scribbling. You were asking me the same questions over and over again. And from their point of view, I think it does get a bit weird because you do have to ask the same questions over and over again because you get different answers and you want to make sure. And, and so she, so that she was, I think from her point of view, it was her, her experience tells you a little bit about my process, that the experience of my subjects it ends up being a strange experience because they end up letting a total stranger into their lives in a way they don't let their most intimate relationships in, into their lives. And at the end of it, in some ways, I know her experience better than she does. Uh, but you, I had to do that because I had to nail to the page this person whose this person whose whole life was designed to run the pandemic. She had spent her whole life doing exactly the things that one would do to to contain this virus at a national level, and no one would let her get to the problem. And the the whole, and the whole so whole life was important. It wasn't just she was a health officer in California. It was that from the when she was a little girl and growing up in a an evangelical community in rural America that she heard about plagues from the Bible and became obsessed with viruses and and aim to study microbiology when she went to college, all that stuff becomes important. And that's why, that's why reading it does feel like reading a novel, and it doesn't have the usual journalistic distancing or pseudo-objectivity. It tells... it. Well, the good thing about... The interesting thing about this book is the form actually follows the argument, because what you're saying is that these are the people that could do it, and... But inevitably, here's, here are my a couple of questions, because I, I, you didn't quite persuade me, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, we're, now, now, now we're with Andrew Sullivan looking at my first draft at the New Republic. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, when I looked at your first drafts, I was like, Jesus, how could this be improved? But let me, I'm not saying it, but here, here's the thing. How can someone with that level of experience somehow do the job of the head of the CDC or do the job of the, the, the and, and run have the skills to run an entire massive organization like that. They have to, aren't there, isn't there strength being at the local level rather than being higher up? Well, she would never, she, she wasn't at the CDC, which, she, which should have happened is she should have, she was, she had been the chief health officer of the state of California and right. she should have been in Gavin Newsom's ear 
two months right. earlier than she was. Right. Okay. And what she would have she would have done is let the local health officers get out in front of it faster than they did. That would have been so. If the question is, could someone with those that set of character traits have managed something really big? She'd managed big things before at the state level. So I don't think that was the problem. I think the problem was that that there was that the odds of letting anyone in this country have that the kind of authority that was necessary to run it well and to trust them to run it well were really slim. Not but not so slim in California. California uh rel- managed the thing relatively well in part thanks to her, but California didn't recognize they had her until the end of March. Uh, when she knew what to do in the beginning of January. There's a bigger question. So I'm not, I didn't persuade myself in the sense that I didn't persuade myself that the virus in this country was containable the way that it was in Australia. I mean, the other countries contained it, but other countries are different kinds of societies and had different kinds of challenges. But I did come away thinking that instead of you know, 600,000 people dead in the first wave, it might've been 200,000 or 100,000. And, and I did come away thinking if we walk away from this experience, thinking that we actually have in place the mechanisms to deal with the threat, we're screwed. Because mm-hmm. w- what we've seen is that we actually don't have a system in place. To, to, there's no system for her to run. That even if you put her at the CDC, if the White House doesn't want her to do her job, and the Trump administration quite likely would not have, it would have just it, it, it wouldn't have gotten us anywhere. And if you had rebellion at the local level, the CDC had no authority to go make the state of Alabama do what it wanted to do. You, you'd have to have buy-in. So the question is, could someone like Charity Dean lead the country and persuade them? Um, and the answer to that is, I don't know. But but certainly, even if you got kind of a halfway better response. You just had a lot less suffering. And and the point of the character to me, among other things, was to show the weaknesses in the system. It wasn't so much to say this person could have solved the problem all by herself. It's more this person is, this person is dramatizing for us the difference between the system we, we need in order to deal with the threat and the system we have. And you can see, because of her experience, going back a decade, that that the problem isn't just Donald Trump, that the problem is there, there is a bureaucracy in place that actually does not want to do the kind of things you need to do to, to control the threat. Well, the, the problem is that, I mean, I would counter by saying maybe the problem is that this cannot be countered, really, that there are some forces in human history and in the world which are very, very hard to contain. If you look at, you talked about Australia as a success story. They now have the military policing the streets to prevent people from moving anywhere. And this is, they have 15% vaccination. They are under military control, basically, for the indefinite future. They have no freedoms. They have no so, ability. So, so the vaccination is a whole nother story, but do they have 15% vaccination because they don't have vaccine or because the people won't take it? Because they don't have vaccine, I think. Right. Yeah. And because they didn't act quickly enough to procure the vaccine and to buy it. This is the whole distinction between the EU and the UK, actually, in this they, the UK actually found a person rather like Charity, who this woman who just was so, was asked, "Can you fix this?" Boris asked her. They knew her from someone else, and she said, "Sure, I'll." And she went out and bought. Had no given a massive budget, she went out and got it all. And right. That's how. So she saved the British in many many respects. However, 
I, I, I wonder whether I want to be Australian. I, well, I wonder whether if your sole goal is restricting this disease and you have no other goal in mind, you could shut us all down, put us all in. But a well, society can't operate like that. It's Well, I disagree that it's that you're, you're sort of posing it as a choice between freedom and health. And that if you let the so but but that's not the way this thing plays out. That if if you let the virus run, you lose not just your health, but also your freedom because people just people hide in their houses. I mean, the places where the places in this country where the economy was less damaged were the places where the virus was better controlled. And because there were more restrictions in place. So California did better economically than, you know, Alabama. And in the at least in the I haven't paid that much attention to Australia in the last couple of months, but at least in the first wave, the first year, the, Australia had enormous freedom because they controlled the virus. People were going to rock concerts without masks. So it, it wasn't that oh you can choose to either have your freedom or your health. It was you get either you get both or neither. And if you you let a really dangerous virus loose you don't need the military to lock people inside their homes. Nobody's going to come out. Um, well, they do now in order to prevent people from socializing or going on dates or any of the other things that make life worth living. They have to now they have <laughs> they have the military policing these things. Also in the UK, they have this extremely they had very draconian uh, social distancing and masking and all the rest of it. I'm I count me skeptical about this. And I, I feel that do you think, do you think skeptical says it? You really think that nothing could have been done. There was nothing strange about the United States having 4% of the world's population and 20% of the deaths. That you really think there's nothing to be done to at least bring the United States in line with the rest of the world and that we were kind of doomed to end up in the position we were in and that all the death was inevitable? No, I don't think I'd go quite that far. I do think that the ability to take America and and instigate a national, which is what you have to have, federal lockdown yeah. very, very quickly. Well, you have to do this very, very quickly. In fact, you know, a matter of days at the beginning yep. makes a huge amount of difference. Yep. Uh, and I just don't think once it had gotten in, once, for example, we had a whole bunch of U.S. nationals coming back from China in the very early part of the epidemic, there was no way you were going to be able to control this, given how infectious and transmissible it was. You could have restrained it some more, but I, but we did. I mean, also, if you look at 1918, there was no such massive attempt to shut down the entire society. That's new. What charity was proposing, what other people were saying, never been done before in plagues which is shut down the entire economy, keep everybody inside. Shutdown is, now they were, that's not what they were proposing, but do, to introduce some of these interventions, they were, they were proposing. And it does, you know, the California and New York make an interesting, interesting case studies, the difference to the outcomes. California and New York got to a hundred cases at the same time. California shuts down, New York doesn't. And you have this carnage in New York that California escaped. The, the San Francisco Bay Area, manage this thing about as well as any place in the country and actually better than most other countries. And the disruption to the economy was, I mean, it, it was disrupted, but not nearly as as badly as but, a lot of but my point is that the very the, what you're saying actually sort of suggests my point that the, the massive difference between New York and California, the way the federal system operates, the way yeah. that Americans in particular are perhaps the least but organizable it, people. It, that's exactly. Uh, so this is true. 
that we are not organizable people. And it is hard to imagine with the society as it is now, someone standing up in the White House and getting everybody to behave in the same way. That's true. That's true. But um, that doesn't, but mean, at, someone, that Britain, doesn't mean someone shouldn't try. Well, let's look at Britain. They did try, yeah. right? They fucked up the very big. They didn't like no government, basically, except for those that had more warning. Australia they had, had more warning. Not they hadn't really gotten in there by the time we figured out what was happening. In general, when I looked at plagues in the past, now of course we, you know, these are all we have much less knowledge back then, so on and so forth. But no one quite ever anticipates a plague when they need to, which is <laughs> before it really happens. Except, except, it, except we did. Except that George Bush brought together this team of doctors who yes, but when, but when push comes to shove and you suddenly get your first case, yeah, the psychology of that or your second case is always to dismiss it, or is always when you're presented if you're a prime minister or president. I mean, you're presented with we have ten people who could die of this, and we don't know where it's going. Should we shut down the economy right now? Should we shut down? Should we have a lockdown? Blah blah. That would have been the right thing to do. It's incredibly hard politically, psychologically, culturally to imagine any government being able to do that very quickly. We look at Boris and they fucked up at the very beginning, but then they had this massive and very well done and, and enforced social distancing, masking, all of it. Rally around the NHS, national unity, don't do anything wrong. And they still dealt with a massive death toll from it. And they got the vaccines early. So, um, so what I'm trying to say, what I'm saying is, the other thing is, if you shut it down, or you try and shut down transmission, you're basically slowing it down, that you, that, and which gives it more time to mutate, gives it more time to get past. That's not how the science works. That, 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 that the mutation only happens if it's re replicating. And so, yeah, but so if you're slowing it, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, it's, if you're slowing it down, you're reducing the number of transmissions and you're reducing the amount of replication. But uh, you are extending the length of the, the possibility of replications. Well, you're, you're giving yourself time for to get the vet to the vaccine or to get to treat right. to get to treatments. Right. So that if you would, would you have rather have wound up with COVID in April or December? You would rather have it in December because they would have treated you better. Yeah. Would you rather would you rather have it in December or the following April? Well, the following April because then you'd have a vaccine in you. I understand. Uh, right. I absolutely understand. And I totally accept. I was fa in favor of them. And I, yeah. I'm in favor of the lockdowns. Right. I wore my mask. I stayed inside. I did nothing. I'm particularly nervous about it for all sorts of personal reasons. <laughs> I, my lungs are shitty and I have HIV and all the rest of it. So I was in isolation, you know, for a very long time. It, it has its, there's a toll that that takes on people too. We're now seeing the rise in drug overdoses. We're seeing extraordinary loss in educational advances for kids. We're, you know, we're seeing all the, as well as the economic blows. It's a trade-off, it seems to me. And if I would argue that you can't do it perfectly from the get-go, we shouldn't be that harsh on the system's failure to really arrest it as well as it should have done. That's, and for my mind, the reason America is so much worse is partly because it's America. And America is just not corralable the way that smaller, more, less freedom-loving, more coherent societies are. And of course, now we have the politics of it, which has fucked everything up even worse. I'm not one of these, don't wear masks. But what would you do now? I mean, so now you, you're vaccinated, right? Yep. yep. I'm vaccinated. I am not really changing, even though I live in Provincetown, which, which has turned out to be ground zero. Although I, 
again, when I look at that, I think, God, if you had any idea what was happening in Provincetown those two weeks, like 60,000 people crammed into all these tiny little spaces in a town of monuments of house 4,000. God knows how much sex, God knows how much partying, God knows how much discoing, God knows how many, I mean, underground basements. So on. And we got, out of 60,000 people, 800 people got something like 800, of which seven were hospitalized, no one died. And how many that, and how many people of those people who were hospitalized were vaccinated? Nobody, right? I th no, I think several oh. of them were. Oh, really? Yeah, hmm. I'm afraid. In other words, these things happen. Yeah. Um, but if you look at that more generally, that's a success story for vaccines. It's not a failure story. It's a success story, right? And we do want to get back to living. So what would I do right now? Yeah. There, there are a couple of things I do right now. I So apropos of the book, well, actually, never yes. mind the book for no. Let's let never mind the book for a minute. I would require vaccines for anybody getting on airplanes, getting anybody coming to my hotel. I, I mean, this is kind of happening anyway. But I would, if I were president of the United States, I would encourage, I would encourage anybody who wants to restrict access to their their to public places on the basis of vaccination status, have at it. So I would find ways to punish people who who don't get the vaccine. I mean, I think they're imposing a the, the social cost of these people are uh, their people's behavior is incredible. Now, I kind of think that the virus is going to drive the behavior anyway that enough, you know, right-wing talk radio hosts are going to end up in ICUs that that that, that will get the message. So I think but but I would try to accelerate that. The things I would do in response to the clear weakness in 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 our first response, I would remove disease control from the Center for Disease Control. I, that I would just cease, I would eliminate the fiction. I, I abandon the fiction that we have this institution that is actually set up to control disease. It isn't. It, it's, and, we, and it keeps failing because it's being asked to do something it, it is constitutionally incapable of doing. It's uh, more a research center, you exactly. think, than it is actually a, it's an, an executive function. Yes, right. that's right. It's an academic enterprise. And it's an academic enterprise that is scared of its own shadow and is, is politicized. And I, would use, I might use what I did there as a, a model for what to do with other kinds of threats, like, I don't know, threats to, to uh, cybersecurity, where I would, I create a, a career position, not a presidential appointee, that was disease control. Put, they put it in the White House, put it, well, I don't know where you put it, I guess you wouldn't put it in the White House, you put it beside the White House, you put it in Washington somewhere, and, and have that office make recommendations about how you change the system so that they can actually control disease. Right. So, I would use this moment to try to create a structure. So if this happens again, as it will, yeah, you don't think I don't think it's going to be another hundred years. And and, no, I don't I don't think, I, and I don't actually think this came out of the blue in the way that 1918 came out of the blue. Uh, no. There were there were there were plenty of hints that our relationship between the relationship between human beings and nature is broken. And the, the, that relationship, the, the broken relationship is leading to the jump of these viruses from animals yeah. into people. And that's going to happen again and again. So it's and there are things you can do that. In fact, Joe DeRisi, one of my characters, was trying to do set up a system of tripwires around the country so that the minute some new pathogen emerges, we know that we're not we don't find out about it three months later. Um, there are these kinds of the things that can be done, but that that only is going to happen at, at the level of the federal government and only will happen if someone feels actually responsible for controlling disease as opposed to sort of observing it and reporting it. Um, 
So that, I think that's the first thing I would do. And I think we have this problem with lots of kinds of threats where there actually the, there's not a competency at the federal level that you need. Now, there's also not a legal structure. The, the federal government can't make, the CDC can't make local health officers do anything. Um, right. And so we may want to, the, the, the odds of changing that, not high. But what you could do is organize them, the local health office better and better and make them feel more dependent on that, on whoever that is who's trying to control the d- disease so that they feel like it's, it comes at a great price if they, if they break with their fellows and behave in some different way. But I don't know, what would you do right now? Would you? What, what, I, I mean, here's what I would do. Not much different than what you were saying. I mean, except I, I definitely think that airplanes... There should be vaccine requirements. If you if you can't take your water through TSA, you should be able to yeah. have a vaccine. I mean, yeah. if you can't take a, a possible, you know, box cutter, you shouldn't be taking a live virus. Right. And very simple. All airports should should prevent that. Apart from that, I sort of think that reality is the best influencer, and that you're right. That, that what we've seen as the deaths have started to come back that vaccination rates are going up in certain in in some red states. But then you also have the there are two groups, right? They're the evangelical white sort of Republican people who are ideologically resisting this. And then there are a poor African-American and some minorities in major cities. Like there's still only 38% vaccination of African-Americans in New York City, which is a kind of shocking figure. So you somehow have to get to those people. I find that the second group is much more sympathetic than the first. I can understand. There's a There's a history. There's yeah, a there is a history. And yeah. there's also a simple lack of access to health, health services in a way that others do. And, and so on. there are many different barriers going on there. No, I'm not assigning blame yeah, to either. Yeah. I'm just saying if we're analyzing where we yeah. have to work, we have to work there. And I think probably the latter, we're going to have to do more engagement, more in the community stuff, as opposed to hoping that death will encourage them to get vaccinated. I'm a little shocked that people don't. I mean, I've never understood this. I've, my life has been saved by medical technology, I have no real qualms about as long as it's basically okay about protecting myself from disease. I'm a little bit more fatalistic than you, uh, I have to say. I mean, I think what's so wonderful about people like charity, they really believe they can make a big difference. I'm not sure by the end of this epidemic, we'll be able to really say that one country did a lot better than somewhere else. You tend to see that over the long run, countries that do well at the beginning tend to do less well towards the end. The countries that do crap, I mean, the EU is doing better than the US now in vaccinating people. Right. That's just, that's a remarkable turnaround. So we'll see in the long run how best to do this. I just, I wonder if governments can really do that much. We want to believe we can, but it may be that we cannot. And I know that sounds fatalistic and defeatist. In my own life, I've done everything I can to prevent getting this. Well, well, well. So, I'm not putting a mask back on walking outside. I'm just not. I'm sorry. So, no. so, um, it's indisputable that governments can do things to, that make a difference because governments have been doing things that make a difference. It's just at the local or state level. I mean, they've been pretty radically different outcomes from place to place because of the different policies. And, and, and but the, they're all connected and, and the people it, travel and no, move, so, it's very hard. So the, it's absolutely true that the vigilance of some of one local government is undermined by the indifference of another local government. The, yeah. inco- the incompetence of one government costs everybody. That's absolutely true. And it's true at the, it's true at the, glo- at the global level as well. I mean, the United States could have behaved perfectly and it still would have been at the mercy of how well Mexico managed it. Absolutely true. However, and so, so it, it's true that 
other people's incompetence or indifference makes it virtually impossible to contain a virus. But it doesn't make it, it but to blunt the, the damage that the virus causes, you can still do that. Would you rather have gone through this, this pandemic in some Florida county or still be going through it or in Santa Clara County here in California? I mean, that, that's a no brainer. It's intelligently run here and responsibly run here and it's not there. And you are safer here than you would be there. It's true you're not completely safe or as safe as you should be, but governments have been and made a big difference. And, and they also, you know, this is one of the interesting insights that my characters who will go to the Bush White House generate when they go back and review what happened in 1918 was just that your fatalism is a little is a little unwarranted because if you go back and you can go back and see that different cities had different outcomes based on the timing of the intervention. And St. Louis had half the death rate of Philadelphia because they intervened earlier in relation to the arrival of the virus. Now they also they also did something quite radical. They actually had a massive parade, huge public event yes. in the middle of Philadelphia, yeah. just because, right. by the way, they thought the vaccines were imminent and they didn't think there was that big a threat. And also, one of the other remarkable thing of that time is that do you know the president never mentioned it, never mentioned. His the 1918 flu, even though he probably got it. His his surgeon general eventually stood up and mentioned it. Yes. Uh, so, but what, an, but what an amazing yeah. difference. Right. Um, right. You can go back to the British Parliament in 1918. Not a single debate about this. Yeah, people, it's kind of staggering. Well, people just thought, well, you know, this is part of living. We all die every now and again. Nature's going to cut us. <laughs> Stiff well, up a lip. It was take it like a man. That was Boris's first. Boris's first position was, oh well, stiff up a lip. Let's all die now. <laughs> You're well, going to lose grandpa, but we'll get through it. That was a kind of response, right? Well, it was all playing out against the backdrop of World War One, so it's a little different. Yeah. Right? No, I know, I know it was, and also it was flu, and COVID was not the flu, and and there were differences going on there, and also the governments didn't want to distract from victory in the war, right. which is why they kept people at bay. But it was also worse in as much as it affected younger people, and so we didn't have that. In this case, we were able. The toll was taken on people who we didn't often see. Right. The old and the weak and the vulnerable, and that's always bad for getting public health worrying, getting regular people who think they're immune worrying. What do you think, how different do you think the response would be if it killed young people? If I think huge. Yeah, I do I think too. If children, I think if children started dying, then I think there would have been a massively different response to this. I do. Because children being vulnerable just trumps everything else. So and even so, we've, made, we've protected them more than we needed to, I think, in fact, in this particular disease. But these viruses will often be generationally choosy, picky. I mean, depending upon people's resistance to previous waves of bugs and things. So that so 1918, it just so happened that the older generation were immune to that because they had gone through something in 1898. Mm. And people who hadn't gone through that or were born after 1898 were fucked. Right. So that's how that worked. I, I just, I'm, I marvel at the way these things happen. I've, I've been fascinated by how they've taken place in history. I, I like you. I'm not going to, I'm just pushing you. I'm just trying to challenge whether some of the stuff, uh, <laughs> no, that, but I, but it, but nonetheless, but you, but, you make you make a strong case through these human beings who really wanted to do well. And what's also true is that you can see the systems are not the people, and and that there are people, good people in government, really wonderful people trying to do their best, right? I mean, that's one of the things that you bring out that's important. That the dismissal of government is as dumb as the uncritical embrace of it. That there are really good people in there trying to make things better. But we also live in a world where 
our country does not have the kind of solidarity, sense of sameness that it did in 1918 or even in the 1950s. I mean, the response to the polio vaccine was just a, a different order of magnitude. No, we are there's almost no exception to the rule of tribalism, that if one side says X, the other side has to say the opposite of X. I know. And so I just read Obama's memoir, and he there's a little passage he, at, towards the end where he's describing the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden. And he says he was struck after it happened, that it was the only time in his presidency that he didn't, that the Republican Party did not seek to discredit, find another narrative, find it, find some way of telling the story so that it was this was actually a bad thing rather than a good thing. And he said that it, that it, it was the, that it had and it was so depressing in a way that they that it took that to unify the, the country because there yeah. were all these other threats that were actually much more serious that the country refused to be or to be unified about. Yeah. A house divided against itself um, cannot stand. And you see this exposed, the politics of this exposed our vulnerability. We'd rather die. Yeah. Literally rather die. So I concede a point. So, <laughs> concede so, a point. So I went up as I was work, when I was working on the book, I, I I wandered some of the Republican counties in, in California. And Shasta County has been which has been trying to secede from California for 20 years and form the state of Jefferson, the free state of <laughs> Jefferson. Um <laughs> But Shasta County was was in full revolt and to the point where uh, even when during the when it was supposed to be locked down, the restaurants were completely full, no masks, nothing like that. And one of the leaders of the revolt watched his mother die of COVID. And you might think this would shake him up. Instead, he called the coroner and asked the coroner to change the cause of death on the birth certificate. So it is it is interesting just how... What is that, Michael? I mean, what is that? That it's, is you know what, that I, is so deep, it's hard to disentangle. It, I, I can't explain it. It's partly the power of narrative, that once you start telling yourself a story about the way the world is, it's much easier to, to sort of shape the facts to the narrative than to change the narrative. And it's partly the power of us versus them. When you, when you, when it's me versus you, and something happens that might look might be good for you, I've got to, I've got to prevent that thing from being from entering the us, our world, my world. Right, um, right. So, I mean, but you see that kind of thing, and it does make you wonder how much death has to happen before people change their minds. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, one other thing about like your your justified skepticism about the the ability of the American government to actually coordinate and organize the American people so that we don't all die when a new pathogen arises. It It, it is worth asking, right? not now with Australia, but in the beginning, the first year of this thing, why it was that, I know, Cambodia, Australia, Japan, why these countries were able to to really blunt the effects of it, to really take the edge off, off to, to minimize death the way they did and illness and why we weren't. And and is this a necessary part of the American experience or is it something we can fix? And my characters are obviously less skeptical than you about, they are all very hopeful that there are things that can be done. I'm somewhere between you and them. Uh, but it's 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 something we at least have to face up to. That we at least, oh, have yeah. to, we at least have to face up to the fact that we failed. 
Yeah. And that there was a path to success and that we had all the resources at our fingertips to succeed and we didn't succeed. So maybe we may just want to be a losing team for the rest of our lives, but we ought to just acknowledge that's what we are, that we didn't win this in any way, except we had the resources to, to acquire the vaccine. We won that. Just not the ability to get it in everyone's that's, that's, that's right. I mean, what is it? What do we look like to the rest of the world? The rest of the world is starved for vaccine and dying to take it. And, and we're drowning in it and we don't want it. It's despicable is what it is. I yeah. mean, it, it, I can't imagine that it doesn't generate just contempt yeah. for people here. It's, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of smugness and lack of reality to people here. And I agree with you. I'm pushing you because I'm just broadly more skeptical of the ability to do all this. I want to end by just giving you the chance. You've written this book. You've been doing all the media for it. And... You have just experienced something that I, I think almost no human being wants to experience. One of the worst experiences possible. You've lost a child. Incredibly sudden and difficult thing. Is there anything that you drew from that? Anything that has come from that that made you reflect on this disease or, or the world or your life or your work? Well, it's, I'm going through the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. And I can't even think of what number two is. And my 19 year old daughter, Dixie Lewis was killed in a car accident on May the 24th. So a little more than two months ago, she was with her boyfriend who was driving and they were, nobody was drunk and nobody, no one knows why they crossed a double yellow line and went straight into a truck. And she had such a gift for living and she was loved as much as a human being can be loved and she knew it. And it's been an absolutely gutting experience. And it's an interesting thing how you respond to such an experience. Um, none of the metaphors I've been handed off the shelf seem to really work. The idea that it's a process that you get through, I don't think that's really kind of true. That it's a journey you go on, it doesn't really feel like that. It does feel like a hole has been blown in our lives. And that the question is how what you grow in that hole that how you grow from this experience and one of the one of the things that's in, that instantly applies to to the story i've written is my relationship to grief i mean i've never known grief like this and we are in a grief drenched period in our history i mean that i wrote about it in an abstract way in the premonition one of my main characters, Carter Mesher, who essentially created the pandemic plan that the United States didn't use, but Australia did to save lives, watched his mother die of COVID. I describe his grief, but when I was describing his grief, I didn't feel his grief. I tried and I tried to make the reader feel it, but now I feel it. I know what this feels like and no one should feel it. Of course, we all will feel it. No one should feel it. So that's one that's one way that Dixie's death has already kind of changed my relationship to something I've just written. And it's changed my relationship to other people. It's been, it's been interesting to be admitted as a citizen to the kingdom of grief, that I have lots of close friends who have suffered devastating loss and who have up till now kind of been reluctant to talk about it with me because they sensed in me someone who might not completely understand what they had lost. Now they all it's all coming out. Everybody wants to tell me the story of the loss of their brother or their mother or their child. And in a way they didn't before. It's this, it, I have this new relationship to this emotion that is a, a new a very and very painful emotion. But I got to tell you, Andrew, I mean, this little girl, I mean, she, we have three children. 
all of them are pistol were pistols. She, she just she was full of life and had a great life ahead of her. And it, it's very hard day to day when you know you're the last thing you're going to do before you go to bed is think of her, and the first thing you're going to do when you wake up is think of her. And and I'm trying to make that pain something. I mean, I, I don't want to say positive, but I want to use the pain to grow because, and I want to use the pain to, and her memory to be of some use because otherwise you're just in a dark place. And, and so I'm working with it. I don't know where, I don't know where this ends up. I'm better off than I was two months ago, but I feel my life just permanently changed. Yeah. I, I think the loss of people young uh, is more acute than in ways in losing people old for the obvious reason that they seem to have so much in front of them. And to, and to lose a child is unique. It's unique. There's this other thing. This particular grief, I suppose all grief, is ex it's exhausting. It's And I've been asking myself, less exhausting than it was a month ago, but I've been asking myself, why is it? Why do I feel so depleted? And I think it's because and it, it, that when you're, I think your mind is maps a, a kind of reality at, at any given time. And it and your mind has sort of, you kind of have an imagined future. And the child's in that future. You can't imagine a future without that child. The natural order of things is I go first. You can imagine that you are, your mind is already working to prepare you for the death of your parents. And from a very early age, you kind of think, you know, you that will happen. And when it happens, it will be sad but you kind of prepared yourself for it. Your mind did not prepare yourself for the death of the child, a child. And, and so that you, you're, I, what I think is happening is like, it's like when your, your computer freezes up because it's got, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the RAM to deal with whatever it's trying to do that you, you're simultaneously, simultaneously getting through your day and, and rewriting this imagined future. And it's, um, it is, it's a, it's a, it's not just a painful thing. It's a, de, it's a depleting thing. But I guess say, you know, my, my daughter, my eldest daughter, Quinn uh, and I have been compiling lists of things that make us feel better. And the lists are getting longer. And one of the things interestingly that makes me feel better is I was afraid that I might not want to write again. And I don't feel, I feel not that way at all. I feel like that's going to be an important part of kind of getting through this is and probably writing about this. I, when I was young, I went through a large amount of grief watching people I love die very young. And I think at the time, because there was an emergency, as it were, that you were so, you dealt with it, but you were stealing for the next one. There was so much of it going on. Then when it ended, when it ended, when no one was dying, well, very much fewer people were dying. That was when the exhaustion hit me and I couldn't really move for a while. I didn't know. I thought I was depressed and then it was a grief. It was, it was grief that just paralyzed me for a while. And I remember moments, I know they're weird moments. Like I, I, I was a few months after the death of my best friend, I was eating a muffin and I just thought, this is delicious. <laughs> this is so good. And in those minutes, tiny minutes, I wasn't thinking about him. You know, because you're right that waking up to thinking about that person is it is it's just it's it's just like I'll never get beyond this. And then those moments come, and they're little moments of enjoyment and pleasure where 
it's not fully permanently in the front of your mind. And I do, I agree with you, working, getting on with your life, as long as you don't expect yourself not to occasionally be paralyzed and not occasionally just be unable to really do anything. And you've got to, I mean, my experience is that just got to let that happen. But I agree with you. Some things you never fully heal from. Um, Nor do you want to. And it, it's I, my motto for the last two months. And what I've said to Tabitha and the kids is don't go looking for the grief because the grief is going to find you. Mm -hmm. It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done to uh, not walk into her room that hasn't been touched since she died and just and smell her and look at the plans she was making for her future on the wall. It, it's easier said than done not to pull out old videos or photographs or, and there's a part of you, the part of me anyway, and a bigger part of my wife that feels that to, to move through the grief to something else is to leave her behind in a way you don't want to leave her behind. And that the grief, she is the grief now. I don't think that's true. I don't think she is the grief. I think that she's something else. But in this moment, the grief is serving as a stand-in for her and you don't want to let it go. And I found so far, and God knows, I am, I, one of the things that I've learned is all the advice people give you about this situation, you should ignore and you've got to find your own path. And but my, and my path right now is to the extent I can try to patch together hours of distracted pleasure and normalcy. I should, because the sheer sadness of the moment is going to surface no matter what I do. So don't go trying to surface it. The, the, you know, the, you're going to see the dorsal fin of the beast, whatever, whether, whether you, whether you want to or not, it's coming. And so evade some just to keep yourself sane. Um, and anyway, I, I, I loved her so much and it is, it's a loss that is just very hard to describe. She was brave. She worked her ass off. She tried hard. She was, I was so proud of her. The best thing I can do is live really well in her honor. It's the best thing I can do. So that's what I intend to do and find some way to, to make beautiful things that might not have been made otherwise because of it. Well, those of us who read you uh, will be thrilled to hear that. The one thing about your work that has always come through to me is that it's openness to the human heart. The people that you meet and you see and you champion and you love and you feel fondness for, that's what gives your writing it's, such life. So this is, it's a love of people. So, you love people. So the premonition, this book that I've just written, might be the best example of this in that these characters in an impossible situation. It's possible you're right, that the situation was simply impossible, that there was never any hope. It's possible. I don't completely agree with you. It's possible. These people refused to go there. And they threw their lives into saving this country from itself. And the least we can do is learn from them. But the joy, I, I can't tell you what joy it is to write about such people. And, and it is, you know, I write primarily to give pleasure and I give pleasure through these characters. And these characters were just the easiest to give pleasure through because they were fighting this impossible situation. And at the very least, they at least showed us where 
our problems. They kind of, they showed us where if we want to fix things, we can fix them. We may not want to fix things, but they, we don't now don't have an excuse that we don't know. Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you. Thank you for the work, which touches people in ways you probably don't understand, but really does touch people at a sub-rational level as well as a rational level, because your love of humanity in all its incongruity and weirdness and beauty is so transparent on every page. There's not a there's not a moment of bad faith or snark or anything in what you write, and yet it's always fascinating and fun and interesting and moving. And that's why I, I can't tell you how so many of us are feeling with you and love you. Well thank you. Really love you as a person and as a writer. You are you're a wonderful person. And all of us who have had the honor and pleasure of knowing you know that. And um I'm so grateful for you coming on and, and talking to me about this and about this. And you're a better man than I, Michael, <laughs> and your faith in the American people, especially in the American people, not the leaders, but the people is what keeps me hope about this country, gives me hope about this country. And um, thank you so much. And hang in there and distract yourself and watch out for those dorsal fins. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope you have as best a time as you can. And my love to Tabitha and your family as well. Thank you, Andrew. Love seeing you. You too. It's been too long. All right. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>